This podcast is a recording of SILIP President Phil Bradley's talk entitled Around the World on a Library Degree. The recording was made at SILIP on Wednesday the 8th of February 2012. This podcast is brought to you by the SILIP in London branch and the International Library and Information Group of the Chartered Institute of Library and Information Professionals. What I will do during the course of the talk is explain a little bit about the title there, Around the World Twice on a Library Degree, but I'll also do a couple of other things. I was talking to Gillian about you know, what to do this evening, and we decided really on a sort of a vaguely informative, vaguely light-hearted talk this evening. I'm most happy to do that. It's also worthwhile mentioning the fact that this is my first official engagement as CELIP president, so terribly exciting. Thank you very much. Before I get on to the hopefully amusing, hopefully nice element of my talk, I really do need to spend just a couple of moments talking about something which was brought to our attention recently. Mr Ugrigic of the director of the National Library of Serbia, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this situation, a few nods, so I'm pleased to see that. He, with uh, a number of his colleagues, signed an appeal in Serbia for the protection of freedom and thought. As a result of this, he was dismissed from his post. This is quite clearly a completely unacceptable situation. If librarians do anything, it is our job and our responsibility and our ethical code to make sure that we make information available to as wide a group of people as we possibly can do whenever we possibly can. And the whole concept of the freedom of thought and expression should and is central to everything that we do as a profession. Consequently, what we have done is we, we talked about it ourselves in, in conjunction with a lot of other people. We've written to the Serbian ambassador to ask him to use any of the influence that he can to reinstate Mr Ugrigic. I've said what I've said there, I'm not going to bother to go through that again. It's available on the SILIP website, that's part of the text of the, the letter that we have sent. If you require further information, it's available on the SILIP website. It's really important, as far as I'm concerned, and it's really nice to be in a position here, just to be able to say that we as a profession, and I wanted to make the point here on behalf of all CELIP members, that we protest about this as much as we possibly can do. Uh, as and when we hear anything further, we'll obviously let you know through CELIP website, tweeting, um, any blogs and so on. But it was something I wanted to, to bring to your attention as a really important point. So that's the sad disturbing element of the evening out of the way. Hopefully nothing else that I say will be particularly disturbing for you. What I thought I would do next, having said that I've actually signed this letter and it's gone off to, to the ambassador, I thought you might find it interesting or useful to know exactly what it is that a SILIP president does. I certainly wasn't clear on what SILIP presidents did or the role that they had between the SILIP president and uh, the Council the various trustees before I got involved with it. Obviously, I spent a considerable amount of time 
getting into a little bit more detail as to exactly what I would be letting myself in for if I stood for election. The role of the president is actually a three-year role. You start off in your first year as vice president, then next year you become a V president, and it's uh, on a calendar year, so it started on the 1st of January, ends on the 31st of December, and in the third year I'm the immediate past president. The immediate past president now is Brian Hall, the vice president is Lauren Smith, but for the whole of this year I'm afraid you're stuck with me. And it's your fault because I was voted into the, the position. I'm a non-voting member of Sillit Council. That's to say that you've got your trustees, they make decisions on managing a multi-million pound charity. It is their responsibility to decide what happens. They then pass those decisions on to the CEO and the senior members of staff who are responsible for the management of the organisation. I do not have a vote. No member of the presidential team votes on anything which is decided at all. That's all done by the council, the trustees themselves. I do, however, hopefully like to think I have some influence, so when things are discussed, I will say, oh yes, I think that's a really nice idea, or I think that's a really bad idea, which the latter very seldom happens. So I can hopefully influence, I can give people ideas, I can give people a different slant on what is being done and, and, and said and suggested, but at the end of that, when it comes to Making the vote, I have to keep my hand very firmly down because I'm not allowed to vote on anything at all. I do have a chair various different panels and get involved in different groups within CELIP. So, for example, I chair the audit panel. The audit panel is a group that oversees what the CELIP trustees do and we basically audit what they do and provide advice and information on governments risk management and strategy and structure and so on. Clearly I work very closely with the CEO and the senior management team. I can ask them for advice, they can ask me for advice and we do work very nice and neatly closely together. Particularly when I'm working with external organisations or whatever as we'll get to on, on the next slide. If I'm asked to speak on the radio for example, one of the very first things that I'll do is I'll ring up Mark Taylor and ask him if he's got any advice, inf any information, any facts and figures that he can let me have. And we'll generally discuss between us, if we do get the opportunity, as to exactly the, the, the key points that we want to make in any discussions that we have. Sometimes that's rather difficult because occasionally I will get rung up by Mark and he will say, can you give an interview in 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 minutes time to the press or to brief a journalist? I know in the past... When things have been in the press, Sillip has not had a very high profile. That's something that certainly was a problem, and I'm not going to pretend that it isn't, but hopefully in the last year or so, you'll have seen that Sillip is now mentioned much more often. We are really trying as much as we can do to increase the advocacy that we have and to increase the <coughs> voice of you, the members. It can be very irritating if you spend 
half an hour or an hour briefing a journalist and then you eagerly look through the newspaper the next day. I'm sure they do it just to sell a few more copies because um, rush out and buy a copy of the thing. And you see everything you talked about, the um, facts and figures that you've provided, but there's no reference to Silic whatsoever. So it's one of those things that we're busy paddling away, but you quite often don't see the fruits of the labours. Certainly not mentioned by name, and I don't have a particular concern with that. But even though we're not mentioned in any press references, for example, we are still very active there. I am going to be attending IFLA this year. I'll also be attending other overseas organisations conferences. Again, I'll come to that in a moment. A lot of my job is outfacing. The leader of council, John Dolan, spends a lot of his time looking inwards at how council works within the organisation and how best to run silly. The role that I have is by visiting groups, branches, anybody that wants to talk to me or that I want to talk to them. So my role is very much more out-facing, whereas a lot of the council role is in-facing, looking after the way in which the organisation runs. I also do a number of other various bits and pieces. I oversee city elections, so we, ha we had the election recently and I had to check to make sure that was all legal and above board. Act as the talking head on various radio programmes now and again. I also sign certificates. When I came into the office yesterday, I got grabbed by two different people who wanted me to get a copy of, the, of, of, of my signature so they can put it onto various documents. I also have a very big involvement in the SILIP AGM and in the Members' Day. One of the things that I was really keen on doing, and it's kind of embarrassing talking about it with Silip London, um, but I want to move away from the idea that Silip equals London, London equals Silip. I very much think it's important that we raise the profile of Silip throughout the entire country as much as we can do. So I'm really keen that we start to move the AGM away from London out into different regions so that everybody gets a bite of the cherry as it were. I also do stuff, lots of different stuff, bringing up people, talking to people, I've occasionally and will also uh, later on this year be more involved in round table discussions with <coughs> politicians if any can't make meetings for example. So I'll have an involvement there and I was at the um, all party parliamentary group for the libraries group back in November last year. I talk to members and very importantly what I want to do as much as I can do is listen to the members. I regard my role really as acting as a conduit between all of you and the people in this building and the council itself to be able to talk to trustees. One of the things that I have said that I will be doing is that whenever I go to a meeting of SILIP members, things like this or any other meetings, I'm going to write a short or a long report or whatever it takes, which I will then pass back to SILIP senior management and to trustees to say, well, this is what the members have said, this is what members like, this is what members don't like, these are suggestions that members have made. So if there are things that you want SILIP to do, or that you want Silip to stop doing, tell me. I can't promise that anything that you say will actually happen, but what I can promise is that I will take what you have said 
and pass it on to people who are then in a position to look at those suggestions and change the way in which the organisation works. I'm very keen on the fact that Silip is not this monolith that's at Richmond Street. Silip is every single one of its members. And the point that I've made there is the very last one. It's not a paid position. Every single penny that I spend going around talking or writing or anything else like that, it is your money. So I, in common with everybody else, are very, I always think, you know, if I'm going to be going somewhere or I'm going to be doing something, how many member subscriptions is it going to cost for me to do that? So I'm always really conscious of that. So that's what I do as president. I'm spending a lot of my time this year wandering around the country. And of course, I'm also doing my normal day job, which is an internet consultant. So I'm still writing. I'm still running training courses. I'm still going out and talking to people. I'm still monitoring what's happening and looking and seeing what's happening with search engines. I'm currently writing a new title for Facet on internet search. But I did try as much as I can do to make sure there's a very clear distinction between me as president and me as an internet consultant. I think it, it's very important to be able to do that. I have a number of themes that I really wanted to push as much as I possibly can do this year. And for those of you that follow what I say in my blog or in the Silly Update magazine or anywhere else that I write, this won't come as very much of a surprise to you. One of the key elements that I think is absolutely important that we get to grips with this year is the use of social media. Now, it's something that Silip is already doing, and I'm really pleased to see the work that Richard, for example, has done with getting Silip accounts for Twitter, for example. I've got my Silip President's blog that I'm going to be writing uh, at least once a month, more often if I can do so. It's really nice to see the fact that last year, for example, we were able to live stream the AGM. So we're doing a tremendous lot of work um, there as we can do. And I'm really keen to move that along to give Silip a real investment in the whole social media and get as many people using that as possible. Because what, what social media is about, if it's anything, it's about communicating with people in a different way. What I also think is really important, and it's something that I see a lot wherever I go, is that individual members, individual librarians say, it would be really nice if I could use Facebook at work, or if I could use YouTube, or if I could use whatever other element it happens to be of social media. But all too often, they will say to me, but I'm not allowed to, because it's blocked. My employer won't let me use Twitter. My employer won't let me go onto Facebook. My school won't let me get access to YouTube, for example. One of the things that I want to try to do by the time I've finished at the end of this year is to have produced guidelines or a statement that is going to go up onto the Silip website, which refers to the importance of social media that we as information people need to get access to that and have those resources available to us to be able to do our jobs properly and effectively. What I want to happen is that if an information professional is told by their employer, no, you can't have access to Facebook, 
that they are going to be in a position to go to the website, print off the guidelines that we've got, and then go to the employer and say, my professional organisation uses Facebook. My colleagues use Facebook to talk to each other. Facebook is not about friends. Facebook is about communication, conversations in different areas, and it is vital to me in my role as an information professional that I get access to it. And slot in or out Facebook to Twitter, to LinkedIn, to any other social media resource that you like. The third thing I want to try and do this year at home and abroad is look at how important it is to be a librarian. Not just for yourselves, your family, your friends, not just for the organisation that you work with, but for our communities and for our region and for the country as a whole. And why not go the whole hog? It is important for the entire world that we have a committed group of information professionals. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail over the proposed cuts, the threats to, to the library profession, because we all know about those. What I want to try to do as much as I possibly can do is to give all of us the opportunity and the ammunition to say we need libraries because libraries are good for a community. Now, we can't just say libraries are good so you can't get rid of them. What I'm looking to be able to do over the course of the time that I'm in this position is to go around the country talking to you, listening to you, seeing good practice, hearing from people who are saying, I'm using so-and-so and this is the effect that it's having, or I've done this and we've made this big change within our community. So that I can then take those examples of good practice and write about them in the blog or tweet about what's happened or if I'm going somewhere else to another library group to be able to say oh yes you're doing something here did you know that the Silic branch so and so they're doing something like that as well did you know that Silic group A, A and B and C is doing something like that too so really disseminating that good practice those, those good ideas out and most importantly to be able to take those ideas and when I am in a position to do so, I can talk to a politician, I can talk to somebody on the radio and say, how dare anybody think of cutting libraries? How dare anybody think that they can get rid of professional staff? And then go on to say, because this is what we do. These are the benefits that we bring to our users, to our schools, to our corporations, to our, co uh, our communities. And really make the point that an attack on a library, that an attack on the profession, is an attack on democracy and an attack on freedom of thought. Because that's what it is. So that's really what I want to try to do during the course of the year that I'm going to be spending with you. So if you're doing anything interesting or you think I can use something, an example, please do email me. Send it to me by Twitter. Write to me if you really like writing. It's 
I occasionally get letters. They're quite interesting because I'm not quite sure what to do with letters these days, but I'm sure I can work it out. Um, if you think of anything that can help promote what it is that we do, please let me know. And I'll probably be using it somewhere else in other talks that I'm giving or things that I'm writing. Some of the international aspects that I'll be looking at, I've already done a little bit of that last year. I talked to two different presidents from the Saudi Arabian Library and Information Association and from the Australian Library and Information Association. It's very interesting to meet both of them. They did come obviously from very different backgrounds. They were really interested as much as anything else in how did SILIP work? How is it that we do what it is that we do? I was also very pleased because I got Dr. Coudet while he was here to actually sign up and become a member of SILIP. So very pleased with that. Thank you very much. That's part of what I'm doing. Annie Major and I will be attending IFLA and hopefully this is what we'll be talking on. Future skills and future roles, designing the professional body to meet the needs of new professionals. So again, what we're looking at doing is promoting the concept that librarianship isn't an old, boring, outdated thing that's just about books and for people that like being quiet. We really want to promote the idea that being a librarian is the most exciting job there absolutely is anywhere. Because I absolutely believe that. Because we are the professionals that other professionals come to. And as I wrote in my blog, no, we don't save people's lives, but we help the people that do. We don't save people from going to jail, or we don't send people to jail that they deserve it, but we help the people that do. That is our job, that is our role, that is our responsibility. And we need to use whatever tools we possibly can do to do that. You don't hear people define a brain surgeon as, oh yes, that's a woman that uses a lot of scalpels. That's not how it works. We don't talk about a carpenter as somebody that uses planes and hammers and nails. We talk about these people by what it is that they achieve. A brain surgeon does not spend their time playing around with scalpels. A brain surgeon is somebody who does really in-depth stuff. Well, we're just the same as that. And I think the concern that I have is that we are very closely associated with the artefact. If you say to somebody, define a librarian out on the street, they're almost certainly going to talk about somebody that works with books. But if you said that about a brain surgeon, you wouldn't say, oh yes, that's somebody that works with the tools of their trade. So I think it's really important that what we can do is to move away from what I call, rather grandly, the attraction of the artefact. To point out that we use as many different tools as we need to. And yes, we use books. Yes, we use newspapers. Yes, we use computers. Yes, we use social media. We do whatever it is that we need to because we are professionals and we are on top of our game. So that's really a key important area that I want to be looking at. And I'll be taking that further. I've been invited to go across to Canada to talk to the Canadian Library Association. And the subject that they've tasked me to talk about there is the Big Society and UK Libraries. So, again, what I'm going to try to do there is to look at partly the pressure that we are under here in the UK at the moment. 
but also to talk about the vibrancy that libraries have, the new things that we are doing, and the power that the information professionals have. There is going to be a little bit of doom and gloom in there, but only a little bit. Because again, as I have said countless numbers of times before, and will continue to say, the role of the librarian is absolutely vital. When I wanted to become a librarian, and I was talking to somebody today, I wanted to be a librarian at the age of about 13. And I wanted to be a librarian because I wanted the power. I must have been rather an obnoxious little child, but... You know, people would say, oh yes, you know, you want to be a librarian because you're always reading. And I would say, no, that's not what I want to do. I want to be a librarian because I want to be able to get the information. Because it's getting the information and then being able to pass it on to somebody else. That's the really powerful thing. And I think it's all too easy, all too often, that that is overlooked. Librarians are powerful people. And that's the message that I want to point out wherever it is that I go. I mentioned to several people at SILIP that I was going to be doing a talk here tonight. And I asked Guy Danes, um, all of you will be familiar with him. And I said, you know, is there any particular message that you would like me to pass on? Anything that I think that you think that I need to know or that I need to say? This is what Guy came back with. I will read it out because I want to really acknowledge that. And he said to me, you should acknowledge the great efforts that Elig has made in supporting Silib's international work. The group has taken a prominent role in supporting visits of overseas librarians to the UK. So if it's not too grand, I would like to add my own thanks to the work that you do as a group. Brackets also, and I'm not forgetting Silib in London, because you also do fantastic stuff as well. So that was, you know, one of the things that Guy wanted to say there. So I really wanted to be able to acknowledge that very specifically. But we're also looking at um, areas such as copyright, for example, how we can develop that and work with that in an international perspective. Also looking at information literacy with the Alexandria Proclamation, looking at focusing on things like governments, the importance of the dangers of banning sites, piracy, plagiarism. I'm also keen to look at and to be involved in what American librarians are doing with SOPA and PIPA, for example, which again are very dangerous developments in the promotion of information on the internet. We also need to look at the international recognition of SILIP's qualifications, which enable us to work around the world. And one of the things that I found very interesting that Marion Huckle mentioned to me was that SILIP can talk to NARIC the National Academic Recognition and Information Centre. This quite nicely brings me on to my time going around the world with a library degree because my very first job after I left library school, Polytechnic of North London, was I went and worked for the British Council and a group that I worked very closely with at the British Council was NERIC itself. So very familiar for me to, to hear that. But my actual story about going around the world on a library degree starts in about 1919. Because my this is a bit freaky, believe it or not, it's entirely up to you. My grandmother, who was then a young teenage girl, was in Egypt and she went to see a fortune teller. 
And the fortune teller said to my grandmother, you will spend a lot of time going around the world. You won't particularly enjoy it, but you will do it. And she said, but your grandson will do it even more than you. And of course, this was a time when she was quite young. She wasn't married. I certainly was not even a thought in anybody's eye, let alone anything else. And lo and behold, she joined somebody who joined the army and she spent a lot of time wandering around the world. She passed that information on to my mother who then told me. So whether it's foretold or not, I have no idea, but there you go. It's a nice looking map. All of the dark areas are places that I have been. It's kind of a cheat because we get the whole of Russia. Um, I was in St. Petersburg for three days. Um, so it's, it's kind of pushing its luck a little bit. But I have been to you know a, a lot of those places. My very first trip abroad was to Lesotho, the little tiny country that's smack in the middle of South Africa. And I went there. Uh, the British Council had a book lending program. Before people could be given books in the various countries within which we worked, we had to teach people how to look after those books and how to basically create a library. So pretty much fresh off the back of a four-year library degree, I had to go to Lesotho and compact that down into two weeks. And I spent a very happy two weeks teaching the basics of cataloguing and classification and really getting people up to speed with what happened there. And what really struck me more than anything else, certainly even though it was the first time that I had been abroad, was the thirst for knowledge and the thirst for information that people have throughout the whole of the world. And I found that really quite humbling. I then spent a lot of time wandering around the rest of the world with the British Council. Um, I was involved for a very long time with providing people with access and information on bogus colleges, bogus universities. Um, I'd get lots of queries from British Council offices overseas when there were these bogus organisations um, trying to tout themselves abroad and that was when I spent a lot of time with Merrick and pointing out the fact that these bogus organisations don't provide proper degrees. I spent several times over in Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong and Japan at education fairs. And again, there was a thrust here that I found in that when I was in Malaysia, we had a three-day education fair. And in that three days, we had 60,000 people who turned up. And at one point, I was on the reference desk. We had people five deep waiting to ask questions about what it was that we were doing. So there was a huge thirst for knowledge at that point. Now, I could spend an awful lot of time talking about the really wonderful times that I've had abroad. And I've had some fantastic times abroad. But those generally are not the things that people want to know about. So just for a, a couple of minutes, I thought I'd share with you some of the things that I've experienced. Maybe you've experienced them for yourselves as well. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I've had AK-47s poked in my face three times so far. Generally at airports, actually. One time particularly, I got to the airport in St. Petersburg, coming back to the UK, and I dumped all of my baggage off, and the taxi driver had, had left, uh, and there were two Russian soldiers with their AK-47s, and 
One of the Russian soldiers spoke to me, unsurprisingly in Russian. And I said, I'm really sorry, I don't know what you've just asked me. So he asked me again rather more forcibly. And I said, I'm really sorry, I still don't understand Russian. And he poked his AK-47 at me. And I said, I don't know what it is you want, really. Uh, at which point his colleague said, in perfect English, he's just asked you if you stayed at a hotel. And I thought, well, look, there's two of you. What? So I was able to, I got back into the airport and, and um, get away from that one. So it does happen occasionally that, you know, things like that do occur. Put the Taj Mahal in there. Uh, one of the things that people very often say to me when I go abroad is, uh, oh, what's it like in so-and-so country? The response that I generally give is, well, it's like the inside of an airport, and it's like the inside of a taxi, and it's very much like the inside of a hotel, and it's very definitely like the inside of a training room. And I've been to New Delhi a couple of times now, and I was in the departure lounge waiting to come back to the UK, and I was talking to a, another couple that were there, and they had a nice two-week holiday, and they'd gone to lots of different places, visited the Taj Mahal, they'd been to go, and so on and so forth. And I was saying to them, oh, what's India like then? <laughs> At which point, you know, they said, well, you've been here, you're going back to the UK, you're in the departure lounge, what do you mean, what's India like? And I said, well, I don't know, because I got off the plane, and I got in the taxi, and I was taken to the hotel, then I was taken to the British Council office, and I did the work that I had, and I had a couple of evenings out and didn't see very much, and it was dark, and now I'm back. So, what's it like? Did you see anything interesting? And they said, oh yes, it's lovely. And we went and saw this, and we saw that, and so on and so forth. When I went to Australia, I arrived in Perth on the Sunday night, trained in Perth on the Monday, flew to Adelaide on the Tuesday, trained in Adelaide on the Wednesday, flew to Melbourne on the Thursday, trained in Melbourne on the Friday and flew to Boston in the States on the Saturday. And people said to me, what's Australia like? And I would say, you've seen Neighbours, you know as much about it as I do. I have no idea. I got deported from Singapore, completely by accident. I was, again, I was going out there working with the British Council and I had said I, on, on my little immigration form, I'm staying for... 15 days. Gentleman stamped my passport, in I went, and didn't think to look at my passport again until I got to leave again. Looked at my passport and thought, that's a slight problem here because I should have left yesterday. So I went up to the desk and they looked at my passport. They were not terribly happy with me. And I got pointed across to some other guy and you know, what with it being the, the Dickens anniversary, it was very Dickensian because there was a guy who was sat in a very tall chair and he had a paper ledger and he took my passport and my details and wrote in wonderful handwriting all of my details there. Then he stamped my passport. I said, thank you very much. Got on the plane. It was when I got on the plane, I thought, what did he do? Maybe I should have checked before. And lo and behold, nice little red, deported. <laughs> so when I got back to the UK, I rang up the um, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, because again, I was working for the British Council at this point. 
And I said, um, I've just been deported from Singapore. Is that going to be a problem? And there was a very long pause before they said, um, yes, it actually is going to be a problem. So that was how I ended up with, with two passports. <laughs> I've been in a hotel room and opened my eyes and looked at a rat. I'm not telling you where that was, but it's happened. On one other occasion, um, I was in a country and I was teaching people about CD-ROM technologies many years ago now. And there'd been an earthquake in this particular country about a week before. There were still a few tremors that were going on. And I was training in the nuclear power plant. <laughs> it was a little bit nerve-wracking, I have to say. But... Thankfully, it was all okay, except for the fact that the person who was translating for me was a student of English, and her general, normal day-to-day -day English was fine, but she didn't understand technical terms like CD-ROM and laser and so on and so forth. So I would be talking along quite happily, and then occasionally she would sort of like stop talking, and she would then turn to me and say, what does this mean? So we would have a little conversation between the two of us, and then she would pass on and say what it was that, that I'd said. To my shame, I don't speak foreign languages. It's just, I just don't, and I'm really sorry, and I'm very embarrassed about it, but I don't. It's very peculiar if you're being in a situation where you're being translated and you make a joke and the entire audience laughs ten seconds later. So I'm getting very used to that now. Any of you from Canada? Okay, I'm safe to talk about Canada. I went to Canada to run a training course when I worked for Silver Platter, CD-ROM publisher. It was an inaugural flight, which was a non-smoking flight. And at that point, I was quite a heavy smoker. So I dashed into the boots, went into the pharmacy, got the chewing gum and the patches and the inhalers and about everything I could to get me through this flight. I got to Canada, landed stupidly, and I don't know to this day why I ticked the box that said business should have ticked the box that says pleasure. If you get the opportunity, just tick the box that says pleasure trip. Because anything else leads to grief, as I discovered. So rather than being in the nice little queue, I got sh sh shunted off somewhere else to a Canadian immigration chap. And he said, why are you coming here? And I said, I've come here to teach Canadian citizens about our software. And he said, well, why couldn't a Canadian do it? I was very tempted to give an answer but I thought no don't because I've been on a plane for seven hours all I want is my cigarette the happier I can be with this gentleman the quicker I can get out the quicker I can have my cigarette so I just shrugged and said well I'm the person who's employed to do it so he said okay well where are you teaching and I had to say, well, I don't actually know because I've, I've come, I'm going to the hotel, I'm being picked up by my colleagues in Canada. They will take me to where the teaching takes place. So he said, okay, well, who are you teaching? And I, was, I realized this was just going from bad to worse because I said, well, I don't really know <laughs> because I'm being taken to somewhere and I teach whoever turns up. So he said, so you're trying to get into the country and you're telling me you don't know where you're going, you don't know what you're teaching and you don't know who you're teaching it to. And I said, well, yes, 
pretty close to the fact, actually. And he said, well, I'm not going to let you in. By this point, you know, the cigarette, it was just like... And I just said, well, fine. Just put me in a departure lounge where I can have a cigarette. And he said, oh, you need a cigarette? I need a cigarette. He said, OK, well, I will let you in then, but you need a work permit. And I said, fine. And I thrust my company credit card in and I said, take it out of that. Then he had to decide what I did because they didn't have a job for a software. Per- and he was going through, well, now, are you a teacher or are you a lecturer? And I was like, I'll be a giraffe if I can get out of my cigarette, for heaven's sake. So we eventually decided, and he, he got me this lovely thing, which I still have at home. It was all sort of like copper plate and lots of different colours and gold and stuff like that. And he gave it to me and handed it over and said, there, there is your work permit. And I said, OK, well, what do I do with it? And he said, oh, nothing. And I was tempted to say, I can really think of something I could do with this work permit. <laughs> Getting into the States was always a problem. And it was only the last time that I went there for, at, at this point, Silver Platter, that I worked out what I should have done. Because every other time I'd been there, gone into the United States, and I had to go through the whole rigmarole of, are you coming into the United States to overthrow the government? And, you know, do you have any connections with communist sympathisers and things like that? So I'd go through the whole thing. And eventually, after 10 or 15 minutes, they would let me in. And the last time I was there, the guy said, why are you coming to the United States? And I said, well, I'm coming to my annual appraisal because my boss is here. She works here. And he said, oh, how have you got on? And I said, well, yeah, it's been a pretty good year and we've made this amount of money and I've done that. And he said, oh, that sounds quite good. And I said, yes, I'm I'm hoping to get a good appraisal. And he stamped my passport and said, well, good luck. And let me through. And I was thinking, I could have said that all of the previous times that that was there, but never thought about it. One last one. Best hotels. I've stayed in lots of hotels. But I was going to Istanbul. And I got there really late at night. It was about two o'clock in the morning. And I was staying at a hotel that was called the Best Hotel. B-E-S-T space hotel. The best hotel. So I got out and you know it's it's I was faced by taxis and various gentlemen and who I could have you know I'm sure that they've got AK forty seven sitting somewhere, but you know, they they were all nice nice guys. And one of them said to me, Where do you want to go? So I said, Oh I want to go to the best hotel, please. Ah, he said, That'll be the Hyatt. No, 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 not the Hyatt. Oh, he said, well, you want to go to the best hotel? And I said, yes, I want to go to the best hotel. Uh, two o'clock in the morning, I'm out of my head, tired. And he said, oh, well, it'll be the Hilton. No, no, not the Hilton, but that's the best hotel. You said you wanted to go to the best hotel. And I said, no, I don't want to go to the best hotel. I want to go to the best hotel. And after about ten minutes of working this through, I managed to remember that I'd got a piece of paper in my um, documents and so on. I was able to get it out and I said, look, that's where I want to go. That's the address that I want to go to. And he said, ah, you want to go to the best hotel? <laughs> yes! That's what I've been telling you. So, eventually, if you're going somewhere abroad, just never stay at the best hotel because <laughs> it's going to cause you lots of grief. I, 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 I do tell you. So, I had lots of 
great fun going around the world on a library degree. If I hadn't have had my library qualifications, I wouldn't have got the job at the British Council. I then wouldn't have got a job teaching librarians and working with librarians when I was working uh, a technical support for Silver Platter. And then I, if I hadn't have had all of that knowledge and understanding and background of working with librarians, I wouldn't have been able to have become an internet consultant. So one of the things that I always say to people, if you get a degree in librarianship, it opens up the world to you. If you get a qualification, you are a qualified librarian. One of the things that I really love about being a librarian, and I'm very proud to say I'm a librarian, wherever I go in the world, whatever country I go to, whatever city I go to, I know I instantly have friends. Don't know who they are, don't know where they are, but I know where I can find them. So, the third way of going around the world, not particularly on a library degree, but in social media. This is the way that I keep up to date with what's happening around the world. And this is a little map of the people that follow me on Twitter. 43% of the followers that I've got, and I've got 5,000 or so, are from the UK. Which is a nice number, but I find it really interesting that most of the people that follow me are not actually UK based. There's a lovely global feel about it. Almost a quarter of them are in the United States. So those are the two areas, uh, the UK and the US are the two areas that I work with very closely. But another fairly large number of followers that I've got are in Australia, also a fair number of them in Canada. But virtually every single country around the world, there is somebody somewhere that I follow or who follows me. And for me, that's a tremendously powerful resource. If I need to know something, I can just ask people on Twitter and I will get that information and that knowledge back from them. So for me, around the world, on social media, Twitter, great way to do that. If I'm not using Twitter, another place that's worthwhile spending time, Google+. If you haven't got a Google Plus account yet, I would suggest you are going to get one in the not-too-distant future. The reason for that is that Google is finally working up to the existence of social media. They're beginning to see the importance of it, and they're including a lot of social media data in their resources. And one of the things you can do if you've got a Google Plus account as you can do with Facebook pages, you can create library pages, basically a fan page about your particular library. And I follow lots of different libraries from around the world. And I'm really pleased that the very first one that we've got up there is Silip. ALA hasn't got one. I'm not aware of many other national libraries that have got one, but we've got one. And that man there is responsible for it, so thank you, Richard. Um, absolutely, give him applause. Um, so there's those, there's those, there's lots of them. It's again a way in which I can see what libraries are doing, how vibrant libraries are. If I want to talk to interesting, exciting librarians, those are the kind of places that I'm going to go to look for them. This is going to become more and more important in the future because I get less and less of my required information from traditional websites. I'm getting much more of it from places like Facebook. 
my Facebook site, as it were, my account, I've got about 30 friends. Professionally, I've got about 140, 150. That's the way that I get the information that I want. I spend a lot of my time on library-related Facebook pages from people who are around the world. There's Aaron there. He's in Singapore, for example. And it's the way that I keep up to date with what the profession is doing globally. A new social media website, which you may or may not have come across, a thing called Pinterest. If you're used to things like Delicious or Daigo for bookmarking web pages, what Pinterest does is it allows you to bookmark images that you can come back to. And again, I'm getting access to the things that people in places like California, Arizona, Iowa, a lot of them in the States, but other countries as well, the kind of things that they're doing. I have an immediate social network that's being built for me. If you've not got involved in Pinterest yet, it's worthwhile doing, even if it's just for searching, finding images. It's a very useful tool. Um, on LinkedIn, I just listed here uh, an indication of where I have contacts from. And they really are completely from around the globe. So, social media is the way in which we can connect. Whether it's by live streaming, whether it's by taking a podcast, whether it's by tweeting something to somebody else. Social media is going to be increasingly affecting the way in which search works. If you do a search on Google, you are going to increasingly be seeing references to Google Circles, to Google+. You will be seeing suggestions that Google is giving you from people who are involved or important in particular subject areas. When I'm searching, I will see things that people have recommended to me. When people want to know something, they ask people that they know. And they will ask people that they know in the circles within which they move. Whether it's in the same room, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's on Google+. If I see a recommendation from an information professional, I will take that much more seriously than I will take a result that just comes from Google. So the whole of search is becoming intrinsically connected, interconnected with social media. If you look at things like Bing, their real-time search, they work with things on Facebook. If you register with Bing, with your Facebook account, you can get search results coming back from things that your friends have liked. If you go to somewhere like Bleco, the search engine, you can do a search for whatever you want, slash likes, things that your friends on Facebook have liked and linked to and talked about are coming up in that set of results. We need to recognise that we are influential people. We are touchstones within our organisations, but we cannot simply be touchstones inside the organisation. We need to be touchstones external to the organisation, and we need to be doing that by using social media resources. It's not a nice addition to be involved on Facebook. It's not a nice thing to be involved on Google+. It is integral to the way in which the profession is going to be developing. 
I am not interested in those little silos that we had before. I'm interested in librarians and librarianship globally. I couldn't do that previously, but now I have an immediate key in to that around the world by using social media resources. So if you haven't been lucky or fortunate enough to go around the world once or twice on a library degree, you can still do it using social media. It's not a nice thing, it's an absolute must. We have to get involved with that because in the future, that is how we are going to be found. We are really powerful people and we need to demonstrate that at every possible occasion. And we need to demonstrate that at home and abroad and we need to demonstrate that and to help other people, wherever they happen to be in the world, to increase their knowledge and their understanding and to increase the power of the profession anywhere and everywhere in the world and that is one of the things that is most important about what you as groups can do as groups and as individuals and all of us as a profession thank you very much This presentation is available on slideshare.net slash philbradley if you want to get access to that. In the same place on slideshare.net slash philbradley, I have another presentation which is called 25 Barriers to the Implementation of Web 2. And I talk about those things that come up. It's really important to understand why this is happening. It's happening because IT departments are terrified at the moment. If we think we're having a rough time as an information profession, IT departments for many, many years, and I can speak about this because I have been an IT uh, person, they've got the mystique. They know how computers work. They're the ones that can mystically make things happen or make things stop happen. And now we're discovering that we can create resources for ourselves. We can set things up. We can create our own wikis. We can do whatever it is that we want. We can widely add things to our social media. We do not need IT departments anymore. We do not need and we can't use press publicity departments anymore because it's all changing. And it's worthwhile always thinking it's not just us as a profession that's changing. Other professions are changing as well. And you've got a choice. You can either run away from it or you can embrace it. A lot of IT departments are running away from it for as long as they can be. So what I always say in situations like that when I'm dealing with clients is I will say, what is the worst thing that can happen? And I'll get that out of them. And then I say, okay, let's deal with what's going to happen in that worst case scenario. Because you want to stop people blocking things at the very last point rather than at the very first point. And one of the other things that I do in a kind of sarcastic manner is... If you think back about 70, 80 years ago, or whatever it happened to be, how would your organisation have worked when we were looking at the introduction of the telephone? Because telephones are dangerous things, because you can spend all day talking on a telephone, you can waste huge amounts of time talking on the telephone to great aunt whoever it happens to be in Australia. But we just use it as a tool. Social media is going to be a tool. Now, what I would say there to answer that query is, you need to look and to be able to understand why they're saying no. You need to then say, 
you are a professional. You are paid by your organisation to do a job. You cannot do that job properly if you are being handicapped at every single turn by not being able to get access to the data. You need to look at what people's concerns are because their concerns may be that you're going to spend all day sitting on Facebook. So they're worried about you using social media as a consumer. Or they might be thinking, well, what if you say bad things about us on Twitter? And they're thinking about you as being a creator of content at that point. So you need to get it clear in their minds, are they worried about social media as a creator or as a consumer? Once you can get that clear and you realise that they are scared, then you're going to be in a more powerful position to move forward. Always work from the position that you are powerful people. This is your area of expertise. You understand information. You know how to find it. You know how to put it together. You know how to disseminate it in the best possible way. You know what's appropriate and what isn't appropriate. They don't. All that they understand is this is a danger to us. We better block it for as long as we can do. By embracing it, you are showing the power. By embracing them and showing them, look, there's lots that we still need you for. There's some really technical, interesting things that we can involve you with. So try and move down that particular line if you possibly can do. But in the final analysis, you want to get access to information to do your job properly. If you can't do your job properly, why is that organisation paying for you? Why are they paying you to do half a job? And I really, as much as you possibly feel that you can do, go into it, not necessarily aggressively, but confidently. And always keep in the back of your mind, you are a powerful person. This podcast was brought to you by the Sillip in London branch and the International Library and Information Group of the Chartered Institute of Library and Information Professionals. For further information about events organised by SILIP branches and special interest groups, please consult the events calendar on the SILIP website at www.silip.org.uk. This podcast uses the following sound effects from freesound.org. AK-47 Chamber Round by Noise Collector and 6 Russian News by Green Couch. Both sound effects are licensed for use under a Creative Commons Attribution license.